Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast is Dr. Ralph C. Wood. He is university professor at Baylor University, professor of theology and literature. He's been a friend of mine for a long time, and I'm delighted to welcome you back to Beeson Divinity School and to this podcast, Ralph. Glad to be here, Timothy. Thank you very much. I'm going to begin by just asking you to tell a little bit about your own personal story, your your journey of faith. You've had a very interesting life, an influential one. Say a little bit about uh, how you became who you are. As you know, Augustine says we um, live forward but think backward, and only in thinking backward can we discern the providential hand of God upon us when our lives look like so many chicken tracks uh, as we are going forward with them. Uh, And I can look back and see how deeply um, gifted I was to have been brought up in a very modest uh, circumstance, that is to say, a small East Texas town called Linden, a county seat town, uh, member of First Baptist Church there, um, and pastored by a man during my formative years named Joe, Joe Gilmore. He was a Baylor grad and a man who uh, gave great care to the preparation of his sermons, for example. He wasn't a manuscript preacher, but he didn't give uh, versions of the plan of salvation every Sunday mm-hmm. <laughs> over and again. Mm-hmm. He, he really thought about his sermons, uh, delivered them with great dignity and great passion, and I saw from him this was a calling that I might myself uh, be summoned to and indeed felt God's call uh, into my life, on my life, as a senior. I therefore offered myself for ministry and undertook then to spend the rest of my life doing some kind of ministry or another. Um, at that time, I very much wanted to go to Baylor. This was 1959 when I finished high school. But in those days, Baylor uh, cost $2,000 a year, room, board, books, and tuition. <laughs> and my parents were high school, uh, public school teachers making $300 a month. Mm. And so this was very clearly going to work a, a hardship on them financially. And they had survived the uh, Depression without going into debt, which is no small thing. And so um, I didn't go to Baylor. You can see the great serendipity of where we're going. I've wound up at the place yeah. where I wanted to begin. I went instead to a small school called East Texas State, uh, about 60 miles east of Dallas, in a little town called Commerce. It's now part of the Texas A&M system. It's called Texas A&M at Commerce. And there I, um, I took um, uh, two degrees, a BA and MA, uh, majoring in English and minoring in history, But the major in English was really what turned me around um, because um, the most distinguished member not only of the English faculty but of the whole faculty in the humanities was a man named Paul Wells Barris. Uh, He was an Iowan who spoke foreign languages fluently, who read Latin without a dictionary, and who was, uh, to my surprise, and at first a bit to my chagrin, a very devout Roman Catholic. And in my part of East Texas, there was not, in my home county, there was not a single Catholic church. I had never met a Catholic until I got to college. And so I had all the typical, as you can imagine, um, bigotries about Catholics. 
and for the most scholarly, learned, and faithful member of the whole faculty to be a Roman Catholic uh, threw me for a, a bit of a loop. Uh, but I began to see that he was not there to try to make us into Catholics. He was there to talk about uh, literary texts as they bore upon large theological, moral, spiritual questions. And so I took every course he offered, a total of six. But the high moment came in 1962 when he brought Flannery O'Connor to the uh, campus at this little small college uh, in East Texas, her only Texas visit, so we have that um, to uh, our credit. And I saw that I'd struck gold when I read her for the first time in my life uh, at age 20 because I saw that she was uproariously funny. Uh, I saw that she was uh, deeply Southern, but not in the Faulknerian sense of the aristocratic South, mm. but of the um, the um, the redneck South. Mm. My both sides of my family were sharecroppers, and she was writing about people such as produce me, mm. and writing about them with immense insight and. Um, uh, that course pleased me that she could make world-class art out of small circumstances, whereas Faulkner made it out of large circumstances. But what was most, of course, riveting of all is that in her devout Catholicism, um, she made her Christian faith cohere with her literary imagination. These were not separate spheres that simply stood alongside each other independently. She brought them into a magnificent unity that was, I say, funny, Southern and deeply Christian. And I began to see that if I could spend my life reading uh, figures such as O'Connor and teaching them to undergraduates, I had a calling that might be God's summons to me um, instead of traditional pastoral ministry. I did actually a good deal of student preaching, as you know, in mm-hmm. the South. They let us go pretty, <laughs> pretty young. Or I had no, I had no, I had no business, believe me, doing it. But uh, I, I began to uh, to see this might be my real calling, and it turned out to be. I stayed and did a master's degree with him, working on O'Connor. Was lucky enough to um, win a scholarship, at the University of Chicago, and of course carried on there my whole um, endeavor at bringing together the world of confessional uh, Christian faith and literature that's not only Christian, however, but that's also skeptical, um, also sometimes sub-Christian or minimally Christian, but always seeking to integrate the two, seeing how they really impinge upon each other, how the skeptics raise questions about the faith that we Christians must not dodge, but also how we Christians ask hard questions of those who do not share our belief. Then out of Chicago, I had the very great good fortune of finding my first job at Wake Forest in, in, in Winston-Salem. Sang on there for two and a half decades. Then, uh, to my delight, um, coming to here to Samford for the interim year, what I didn't mean to be an interim year. We had bought a house up here in Vestavia, happily joined the Vestavia Hills Baptist Church, and you may not remember this, uh, Timothy, but uh, at the end of that what I thought would be first of many years, you offered me uh, the opportunity for doing a seminar on Karl Barth yes. in what would have been the autumn of 1998. Right. And you left before there, that exactly. could be scheduled. Exactly. Yeah. And so I had the opportunity then uh, to go be a part of a, of a renaissance that Robert Sloan was undertaking at Baylor. 
Yeah. And have been there 12 years, very happy. Well, I first met you when you were at Wake Forest. I was at the Baptist Seminary in Louisville at the time. A new, a very young faculty member, having come directly from Harvard to that post, and we began to get students from Wake Forest who were very bright, very engaging, who had read deeply and thought widely, and they had one thing in common. They were students of Ralph Wood. <laughs> and so I began, I've got to meet this Ralph Wood. And we did get a chance to meet, I think, at Rice University not mm-hmm. long after that, and we've That's been right. friends uh, across true. these years. Now, I want to come back to your literature concern sure. because I think that's how you have uh, made such an impact across many disciplines. But I want to talk to you for a minute about theology because sure. when we first met those 30-something years ago, uh, you were just coming off, I think, at that time uh, being enamored with Paul Tillich. Mm-hmm. And you exactly were beginning right. to think a little bit more about Karl Barth in a positive way. Talk to it. Why that change? Why sure. that uh, transformation? Sure. Which I think has been influential and important for you in the years uh, since. No, then. no doubt about it. No doubt. Um, at uh, University of Chicago in the, in the mid 1960s, when I was there, uh, Tillich was the orthodoxy of the of the uh, day. I took a three course sequence. Uh, in the systematic uh, theology of Paul Tillich, and um, taught by very good, very persuasive teachers, Schubert Ogden, for example, David Tracy, for example, found in Tillich a kind of natural way of bringing together these two worlds. But when I got into the classroom, I discovered that it was, as it were, too natural. There was too easy a fit between the world of culture and the world of, of faith. Then, you know, Tillich's motto that faith is the substance of culture and culture is the form of religion um, was just too, too simple. Um, it didn't acknowledge the clash, the, the, uh, the right, as Updike would call it, the right angle clash that very often the gospel brings to culture. And so I began to cast about for some better way of negotiating that relationship. And so, actually, I turned to Kierkegaard first, and read Kierkegaard for and some of my friends probably tease me about my <laughs> progressive theological leaps, as if there were no core or center. I hope that's not the case. Uh, but I began to see that Kierkegaard was right. He said, "I must be taken as a corrective, and not as a solution. Mm. I simply bring things back toward what has been lost, but I do not offer anything in the way of a final option." And that proved to be true, and of course, I, having read uh, Kierkegaard, began to know that one of the chief um, appropriators of Kierkegaard in, the, in his early work was Karl Barth. And so I simply, without ever having had any tutelage in Barth, uh, educated myself, if that's possible, <laughs> in reading the church dogmatics, the ancillary works of uh, about all the secondary criticism and blinded myself almost reading that fine, fine print yeah. of Bart and was transformed by it because that is what turned my teaching around. Because what I discovered in students um, is that students do not want a kind of Christianity that simply echoes the culture because ours is a pretty rotten culture. Uh, uh, and, and therefore, if there's not a faith that can offer a drastic alternative to it, uh, why should they pay attention to it? And so I began to actually do a kind of an about faith. So rather than teaching secular writers, I taught my first year, for example, Camus, Sartre, <laughs> Faulkner, uh, Kafka, Hemingway, all the great secular saints of the modern world trying to show that there were 
theological implications, which there are, of course, but there are no theological answers. I did an about face, and I began teaching J.R.R. Tolkien, mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis, uh, Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, Gerard Manley Hopkins, W.H. Auden, and all the list goes. And the students were taken, and I was taken. And I saw that I had now undergone um, the kind of reversal that, uh, that, that Bart not only made possible, but that made my teaching now really possible in a new way. In one of your writings, you write about the idea, I think, that was shared by both C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, that Christianity is the one true myth. Mm-hmm. What, what, what do they mean by that? What do we mean by that? Uh, yes, that's a, a, a crucial term that must not be misunderstood. By myth, they do not mean something humanly concocted, something merely thought up by human imagination, and least of all, some way of escaping the hard realities of the world by fleeing off into the world of imaginative constructions. Uh, they mean by that what um, what Lewis called good dreams, a very important term uh, for Lewis, in which they both began to see that there are certain patterns in the literatures of the world uh, that have pointers beyond themselves, that have, um, Lewis especially liked the term uh, he, he, he adopted from Augustine, that have what Lewis called anima naturaliter Christianity, that have souls who are in a strange way naturally Christian, who are given to a, a kind of sacrificial life of suffering for the sake of something beyond the world. And that those pointers, those hints, those good dreams that lead that lead people and entire cultures outside themselves to a radical self-transcendence are therefore anticipations of the gospel. Uh, they're a kind of preparation for the gospel. So that the Christian faith, as uh, Lewis famous says, is myth become history. So that what was in many cases human imagination has entered time, entered space, in, of course, God's entire self-disclosure, which means, of course, Israel, which means Christ, which means the church. And so in that sense, Christianity is the true myth. Yeah. Bart has a wonderful line where he says, that which the world calls history, we call myth. And that which the world calls myth, we recognize as history. I think that was in his uh, Alcine Andersetzen with uh, Bultmann, mm-hmm. where they were talking about some of those issues of historicity and faith. Um, now, a lot of the writers, Flannery O'Connor being one, that you've been drawn to and have helped to explicate are Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that? Very good question. That's a question I get from my students all the time. Um, several reasons for it. I've, I've co-authored a piece uh, with Stanley Harawas where we tried to answer that question about why this nation, which uh, Chesterton famously called the nation with the soul of a church, has not produced any major Christian writers um, prior to the middle of the 20th century, and only then in Flannery O'Connor and, to a lesser extent, Walker Percy. And what we argued there, and what I think to be the case, is uh, twofold. First of all, so very often the liturgical life, the worship life, the imaginative life, the artistic life of Protestant Christianity in this country has been so thin 
so barren, so wan and weak that it doesn't grab the imagination of thoughtful, imaginative people. When you look at a room that's, you know, empty of anything but four walls with a a pulpit, (laughs) Mm -hmm. your imagination is not brought alive uh, very fully. Um, Now, of course, Flannery O'Connor is very drawn to the South because she says the Bible is what really brings the imagination alive. But the point still holds that that often Protestant worship is um, liturgically barren, Mm -hmm. uh, that one doesn't do anything there that's radically different than what the world does, and so it doesn't really grab the imagination. And secondly, and far more drastically actually, that... A great deal of American Protestantism has been a virtual echo of, and again, what was best in the culture, not what was worse. So it's a very high and a huge accomplishment for the American Republic to have had so close a relation uh, with Protestant Christianity. Uh, but in the 20th century, that really has worn out because that that marriage is now more and more, as you know, a divorce. And Protestant Christianity itself has become so attenuated. Exactly. In terms of its own roots and exactly. its own dynamic. So, you know, Flannery O'Connor said, these people won't have much to do with me, <laughs> but these Bible Belt um, preachers, these folks shouting, Jesus saves, these road signs reading, get right with God, I believe them all. (laughs) In fact, she was once asked, what if you were not a Roman Catholic, would you be? And, of course, her interlocutor, a sophisticate, assumed high church Anglican, maybe maybe, uh, Lutheranism of a certain kind. And she said, no. And this is have to try to be as Georgian as I can. If I wasn't a Roman Catholic, I'd be a Pentecostal holiness. (laughs) (laughs) In other words, her Christianity has to be sweated. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It has to be on fire. It cannot be something cool, detached, rationalistic, and therefore simply echoing what's going on around it. It has to be in a drastic Mm -hmm. um, tension. My favorite Flannery O'Connor story is Wise Blood. Mm which deals with some of these very same issues you're talking about and presents in some ways the the depth and the tragedy of human life mm-hmm. in the face of God's grace, overriding grace, but never squinting on the tragic element. Yeah. It's yeah. there. and uh, Yeah, and, and, and for that reason, then, you've got so many Catholics getting it right on these issues that... Um, she, in fact, I'll use this metalog in, in my, my uh, sermon tomorrow. She says... Um, God's grace heals only after it first wounds. Mm. And an unwillingness to be wounded, of course, shuts us off from the healing, the true healing of God's grace. And she says God's grace burns us clean. Mm. And so when you get that kind of uh, Christianity in a number of Catholic writers, then what I do is try to bring my Protestant and overwhelmingly evangelical students at Baylor to see the way in which their own lives will be tremendously enriched by discerning what the church, Catholic in the small case, but also the upper case, brings to them, but also what we bring to the Catholic church in the upper case as well. That leads me to ask you a question I myself am often asked. You know, with all the affinity that you feel to the Catholic tradition, the dogma, the, the the tradition, the great beauty of its art and architecture and literature and all the rest of the liturgy. 
why don't you become a Catholic? <laughs> I mean, you are still a Baptist, Ralph, right? Oh, yeah. Why yeah. are you uh, still a Baptist? Um, might as well go ahead and cut off this microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I get asked that all the time. Um, in fact, um, I invented a term that Steve Harmon and others have picked up called Bacto-Catholic, <laughs> which is how I define myself. Well, um, basically because I have not been called to be. I've not been mm. summoned by God to be. Mm. And what I mean by that is not something pious, but that I feel I have a tremendous ministry to try to help my people come to this larger understanding of the gospel which um, the Church Catholic offers, just as I feel I have a ministry to Catholics mm. to help bring them to that which um, which they don't have. For example, you know, the gathered church, and mm-hmm. which not uh, a few are to be assigned the um, evangelical councils, but the whole body of Christ is to be intentionally Christian. That's a huge, huge difference, of course. And so um, I remain not in tension between the two, um, but I hope bringing the two together, and I may say in a church, uh, a Baptist church in Waco, that very deliberately tries to adopt as much as it can from the church ecumenical as, as possible and not therefore being bound by small denominational considerations. For example, riding in from the airport, my, the young student here, Robbie Krause, asked me, uh, with what Baptist group our church identifies? I said, none. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're not independent Baptists, yeah, I don't yeah. mean to say that, yeah. but we just think those are such small... They're not a partisan Baptist. Right. They're such small categories. In, a, in what Mark Nolan and dozens of others are calling a post-denominational age. Yeah. I took a, a, a poll of my 33, 35 students, and of course I have this semester on the Oxford Christians, about their own denominational or religious identity. Of those 35, five of them and five only had sure, solid identities. I am a Lutheran. I am a Methodist. I am a Baptist. I am a Catholic. All the rest were seekers. Mm -hmm. They're saying, I'm not satisfied with my religious identity as it was given to me here, there, and elsewhere. I'm trying to find a solid identity within the church in our time. You know, Beeson Divinity School is an intentionally evangelical and interdenominational school. And you're here uh, visiting our campus because you're preaching tomorrow in what will be the closing service of our series this year on the Nicene Creed. And each week we've taken a different segment of the creed and we've made that the focus of our worship. We've recited it. We'll do that tomorrow in our worship service. And this has been a kind of gathering experience for our students who come from all different kinds of traditions and denominations to find there is a common core Christian commitment, a creed and affirmation that we can make as unto the Lord, not just as an intellectual statement of propositional truth, which it is, but also as an expression of joy in our hearts and praise to the living God. And I think I see that happening more and more among evangelicals today, and that's a good thing. Oh, absolutely. By Our Baptist church recites the Apostles' Creed at every baptism, um, and then throughout the year on other occasions, and then we celebrate Trinity Sunday Wonderful. openly Wonderful. Um, by reciting the, the Nicene Creed. So, yeah, uh, when sometimes I'm charged with being a creedalist, I say, would to God that it were possible. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, yes. Well, uh, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you uh, to go back a little bit in history and talk about another Catholic writer I know you have interest in, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, one mm-hmm. of the great poets, I think, of the English language. Absolutely, no question. Uh, and a person who also struggled with faith in Deeply. significant ways. Uh, tell us uh, your take on, on Hopkins. Well, uh, I never get weary of teaching Hopkins. Um, though Hopkins is a very difficult poet, and students uh, have to learn to like Hopkins. They can read George Herbert and immediately sense identity with him. Uh, his language is simpler. Um, his concepts are, are not as complex. Hopkins is a, is a tougher nut to crack. But once you do so, you can see several things going on. Um, one is a revolutionary use of the English language, whereby he's trying to recover its Anglo-Saxon roots, its old English roots. Uh, by the rhythms that were not iambic, brought over from the Italian by Chaucer <laughs> via Petrarch, but are very much from the world of Beowulf and from the great medieval works um, and early medieval works. And so they learn what it's like to think um, and to hear the Anglo-Saxon rhythms. Uh, secondly, he's a deeply sacramental writer, and I try to uh, help my students to see that sacrament is a good word that neither Luther nor Calvin was nervous at all about that good word. A sacrament performs what it declares. It makes something happen. And Hopkins makes it happen in his work. And then thirdly, Hopkins is um, wanting to write a poetry that can take on the Darwinian world without... um, qualms, mm. where he sees that nature does have a kind of surging power that is often destructive, mm-hmm. but he wants to see the deeper power beneath the destructive surfaces of the natural order to penetrate the the, 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 the divine order at its root. Would you read us one of uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins' poems? I'd be delighted, and one of my favorites is entitled, As Kingfishers Catch Fire, Dragonflies Draw Flame. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim and roundy wells stones ring, like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors each one dwells, selves, goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ, for Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. My guest today has been Dr. Ralph Wood. He is University Professor of Theology and Literature at Baylor University. Thank you for coming. My delight, Timothy. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, beesondivinity.com. 
Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.